Our scripture reading today is Matthew 6, 5 through 18. Uh, Our scripture reader is Mary Colley. Uh, In honor of God's word, uh, please stand. Listen as I read. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others in their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others in their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Mary. Uh, So next Sunday, uh, we are starting a series, like an eight-week series, on the seven churches uh, that we find in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And uh, if you're familiar with those passages, you know that <clears throat> there are seven different churches that get a, get a letter. Um, and, uh, and so we're going to take a week and, and consider uh, each, of, each, of those, uh, each of those letters. So I'm, I'm really excited about it, and I hope you are too. Um, but today, uh, we are going to piggyback a little bit off of uh, some of the comments that uh, were kind of uh, sprinkled through the, the vision series over the last three weeks. Uh, and I want, you, I want to invite you into a, uh, an important part of our church's life and an important part that I think is, is growing and developing and that we're, uh, we are quite excited about uh, as we look to the future, and that is the area of, of the general area of, of prayer. Uh, now, you just heard uh, these verses in Matthew chapter 6, and uh, they are pretty special verses uh, for Christians uh, over, over the centuries. Uh, maybe, maybe you've heard them uh, before. They're, they're not uncommon Bible verses, um, they are very, very rich, <clears throat> considering each of the phrases and each of the uh, ideas that Jesus uh, offers when he, when he prays. Uh, that's not the goal today. Uh, we're not going to try to uh, necessarily unpack the Lord's Prayer. Um, but it is helpful for me to remember that when Luke gives us this account, in Luke chapter 11, uh, Luke says that Jesus was in a specific place and the disciples said to him, teach us to pray. And then Jesus, uh, Luke records the, the Lord's Prayer in Luke 11. And uh, I just, many, many times in my life, I've been like, what, what, what a gift that is. That the disciples point blank said, Lord, would you teach us to pray? 
And then his response is, yeah, here, here, here's, here's how to pray. And so the Lord's Prayer is a, is a super helpful uh, model, uh, framework, uh, for us to think about uh, how to pray. Uh, I also recognize that the subject of prayer is like one of, it's one of those subjects where it's just like, man, if you want to stir like guilt or condemnation or feelings of like not measuring up, then, then usually you just bring up the subject of prayer. And everyone who considers themselves a Christian immediately is like, ah, oh, I don't pray enough. And it's like you can just heap on the guilt and you can heap on the, the, you know, the, the, uh, the lack of measuring up. And that's, that's not my goal today either. Uh, my, my goal today is to invite us into uh, the, the nature of prayer, what, what, what it is. Um, and if you see the title, I titled it Prayer and Fasting. And so we're going to at, 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 look at what prayer is. We're going to look at what fasting is. And then I want to uh, kind of bundle them for a second and, and consider um, uh, something that's, that's coming, uh, coming down the road for us. So first, I want us to think about prayer as relationship. If you were asking, what, what is prayer? Um, pr- prayer, you know, it's, it's, you know uh, Christianity is not the only world religion that prays. There's other uh, religions that, that have this idea of, of prayer. Uh, biblically speaking, or Christian prayer, is communion with the God of heaven. It's, it's talking, it's communion with the God of heaven. And, and I want you to see how Jesus talks about it here in Matthew chapter 6. Uh, in Matthew chapter 6, before he gets into the Lord's Prayer, which starts in verse 9, in the lead up to it, he, he gives this sense of it um, being private and, and personal. So he says, um, you know, like he talks about all their words and whatever. But verse, verse 6, he says, But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees you in secret will reward you. And so Jesus, in this passage, presents prayer as private and personal. He says, go in and shut the door. In other places, he talks about like a closet. And, and he's given us this, this picture that prayer happens in private and personal ways. And that's important. But prayer can also be public and corporate. And Jesus does this multiple times. He prays with his disciples. Uh, Acts chapter 1, uh, right, after Jesus is, is, uh, after, right after his resurrection, it says that they are all gathered together in one accord, and they're, they're, they're praying together. Uh, there's tons of examples of, of Christians gathering to pray. If you think of what the book of Psalms uh, you know, the 150 psalms that are, you know, kind of right in the middle of your Bible in the Old Testament. Uh, it's, it's like, it's the songbook for Israel. It's also the prayer book for Israel. And it's kept for us in the Christian scriptures. And as you go through the psalms, many of those psalms are corporate in nature. They are inviting the people of God to gather together to, to talk to the God of heaven. So Jesus here presents it, in a, it, it prayer is private and personal, But we also know from Jesus' own life and from the rest of Scripture that it's also public and corporate. Well, another comparison. Uh, Prayer is a point in time. So Jesus here is talking about intentional prayer, about shutting your door. And and this is where your posture, how you pray, can be a little bit more on purpose. Uh, You could kneel. You could close your eyes. You could fold your hands. Uh, You don't need to do any of those things. Uh, but they may help you. They may help you focus. They may help you realize that you are uh, in communion, in, in conversation with, with a, a supernatural deity. Uh, a few years ago, I was preaching on prayer, and I, I said the fact, we, I said, you know, sometimes we think you have to close your eyes, you have to fold your hands to pray, and the Bible never tells you 
that you have to close your, hand, uh, close your eyes or fold your hands. And after the service, a dad of a young child comes up to me and says, you really didn't help me out. <laughs> He's like, I've been trying to teach my kid how to pray, and I've been talking to them about closing their eyes and folding their hands. And he was teaching them that for the point of focus. Um, but uh, hearing me say that they didn't have to do it uh, kind of put a, uh, threw a monkey wrench in his plans. But the Bible never says that. The Bible never says you need to close your eyes or fold your hands. Uh, one one uh, spiritual director um, suggests that, that, we, that sitting is quite a helpful posture for prayer. But they admit quickly that sitting is in a chair is not very common. It's not actually seen in the Bible. But in our culture, we sit in chairs to do our most focused work. And so maybe in our culture, it makes sense to sit in a chair, to sit in a chair with your, with your palms up. Uh, maybe you like to, to kneel, to, to pray on, on your knees. Uh, some people like to, to lay on the floor. Some people like to stand. Some people like to stand with their arms up. There's an invitation in this intentional point-in-time prayer to give that kind of intentionality to your communion with God. But we also know that prayer is a way we live in the world. It, it, it can, it's prayer all the time. Uh, in another part of the Bible, we are told to pray without ceasing. That, 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 you know, clearly, that does not mean that while you're driving your car, you know, if, if, if you want to pray, like you got to keep your eyes closed and your hands folded, right? It's, it's this idea of while I'm living my life, while I'm going through the things of life, I'm in communion with the God of heaven. There's a recognition of him being present of him being around, that I can actually pray while I'm driving my car. I can pray while I'm in the middle of a conversation with other people. Uh, I, I, can, I can communicate with the God of heaven in this kind of way that I live my life, in this prayer without ceasing, prayer all the time. It's an awareness. What I want to make sure you don't miss is that prayer is relational. Uh, Jesus, when he begins to pray, like I said in Luke 11, uh, Luke says this is in response to the disciples saying, Lord, teach us to pray. And then he says, okay, here, here's how to do it. Our Father starts right off with this familial relationship, this sense of the fact that it's like you have a dad, you have a father. There is a, there is a spiritual relationship when this communication happens. And there are all kinds of, of, of writers and authors and books and resources that, that help us navigate this relational side of prayer. Uh, last week, I quoted a little bit from Richard Lovelace, and I'm going to quote some more of him uh, later, th later this morning. Uh, Robert Mulholland Jr., uh, one of his books is on our book wall, Invitation to a Journey. That, that book will be a great help to you in figuring out how to have relational communion with the God of heaven. Uh, Pete Scazzaro, uh, Adele Calhoun, Ruth Haley Barton, these are all authors that, that, that have worked hard to invite us into this reality of communion with a father, that it's relational, that it's not some impersonal deity that we're praying to. It's not some idea that we're praying to. It's, it's a person, and it's even more than a person. It's our father. And so as we pray, there's a, a sense in which there, the, this recognition of the relational, uh, uh, the relational aspect you know, it, it invites us into this historical realization that there's a lot more going on in prayer than us talking. P prayer involves us listening. Uh, us listening to God in his word. Uh, being quiet enough to hear his voice through his spirit. Asking the question, what does God want me to hear? 
And yeah, to, to, to bring our stuff too. The Bible often uh, references the idea of when we come to God with our requests or through, with confession or with thanksgiving, gratitude. Of course we, we bring our things, but there's a two-way sense to prayer. There's a, there's a, a recognition that, that I actually need the God of heaven to commune with me, to, 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 to give me direction and guidance. Uh, Eugene Peterson wrote a little commentary on the Psalms, and the title of it is Answering God. Answering God. And so his point is that God has spoken, now we're responding. We're, 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 we're talking back to God. And what a helpful way for us to consider what prayer might be is this two-way street, this, this two-way communication, this sense in which I'm, 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 in, I'm uh, digesting God's word, and then I'm talking to him about what he has to say. Uh, there's an Anglican minister who said, prayer is the movement of God to man and of man to God, the rhythm of encounter and response. David, in the Psalms, does model this in, in one Psalm specifically, and he does it in, in a pretty helpful way. Psalm 119, which is the largest of all of the Psalms, um, almost every single verse in Psalm 119 is addressed to God. And 171 of those verses are talking to God. And so what, what you find is that almost every verse in Psalm 119 is talking to God about what God has said, talking to God about his word. It's an interaction. It's, a, it's a, uh, an encounter and a response. It's a relational engagement. It's not just coming with your laundry list of things. It's personal. It's relational. Communion, encounter, response, relationship. Eugene Peterson uh, says, Prayer is a refusal to live as an outsider to my God and my own soul. He says it's a refusal to live as an outsider to my God and to my own soul. In other words, the work that God wants to do is, yes, to reveal him to us, but he also wants to reveal us to us. He, he wants us to see ourselves. And, you know, Christians have been onto this for a long time. I mean, just an, an example would be 500 years ago. Calvin said, if you, 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 you don't have a chance of knowing God if you don't know you. And you don't have a chance of knowing you if you don't know God. It, it's this sense in which you, you got to realize what's going on inside of you and what ways you might be wanting to filter the God of the Bible. you you, you got to know what's going on in your heart. And prayer is part of the way in which God gracefully begins to show you some of the tendencies that you might have, some of the ways in which you might be discerning him, some of the ways in which you're making him into the God you want instead of the God that he is. And th this is not an easy process. One of the reasons why I'm thankful that prayer is also communal, that prayer is, is, is with other people, that it's corporate. Because uh, part, of, part of the journey here is I, I need other people to help me see me. I need other people to help me see the God of heaven. And prayer, yes, prayer in, in the private, but also prayer with others is an important part of that journey. In a sense, you could say that prayer is practicing the presence of God. It's an idea that a 17th century monk named Brother Lawrence was, was kind of famous for. Practicing the presence of God. Pr prayer is a way that we demonstrate our belief that God is really with us and that he cares. 
Prayer is a way that we put that on display. The fact that I actually engage in the conversation is this evidence. It's a demonstration that I believe that God is actually here and that he cares about what's going on in my life and in the world. And you might be able to get that right on a quiz. You might be able to say, yeah, God is present and yeah, God cares. But like, it, it's a whole different thing to actually experience that. To actually have that drop into your heart where you really believe that he is ever present. That he is always with you. That you really believe that he cares about what happened to you this past week. That he cares about what happened to you every day of your life. Prayer is a way that we put that on display. Prayer is relational. I also want us to think of prayer as giving up. Look at how Jesus sets up his instruction on, on prayer in verses 7 and 8. He says, When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Don't be like that, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So he says, don't do it for show. There's plenty of people out there that are doing it for show. And you and I, maybe I shouldn't put you on the, I, I have done it for show. I've prayed for show for plenty of times. And Jesus says, that don't do it that way. Instead, remember who you're talking to. You are talking to your perfect heavenly father who already knows what you need. He already knows what you need. So, so think about this. When we pray, we, we are entering dangerous territory. Because we, we, are, we are talking to a God who knows what we need better than we do. It's one of the reasons why when Jesus presents uh, his, his prayer life in, in public ways, he actually puts this sense of uh, uh, on display where it's like, not my will, but yours be done. You see, as, as, as even as, as the Son of God who, who walked on this earth, as he prays, he actually puts on the table, he says, I'm asking you these things, but I know who you are. You're the Father who knows what I need better than I know what I need. And if that's true, then not my will, but yours be done. Don't do my plan if it's no good. Do, do your plan. You know what I need better than I know what I need. And you, know, you know what happens? God often wants to remodel parts of our world that we don't want him to touch yet. And so when we get into this real sense of prayer, when we're actually engaging with the Heavenly Father who knows what we need better than we know what we need, and we have the audacity to say, not my will but yours be done, that's dangerous territory. It requires a willingness to give up. Prayer demands a heart that is willing to be reshaped. Our desires, our wants, our habits, our agendas. This is the sense of biblical prayer is that I'm coming to a heavenly father who knows what I want or knows what I need better than I do. Jesus says, your kingdom come, your will be done. I have some opinions. I have some thoughts. I'm experiencing some things. There's some things that I would like different. There's some stuff that I would like to change. And if that fits, then please, please do that. But if not, if it doesn't fit, your plan over my plan. You see, prayer is not trying to control God. It's intentionally letting him control you. And when you have a two-way street, you can see how this could be effective. If it's just a one-way street, 
If it's just you bringing your stuff to God, then of course it becomes uh, like a demand. Uh, of course it's going to feel as if you're trying to control God or you talk to God and he never does what you say. But I would like you to consider the fact that that's not biblical prayer. Biblical prayer is not a one-way street. It's a two-way street. This is one of the reasons why fasting is such a powerful way to enter into prayer. And you know, fasting was an original Christian practice. The Jews were fasting before, before Jesus came, before their Messiah showed up. And after Jesus showed up, I mean, while, during Jesus' own life, he fasted. After Jesus died, rose again, and ascended back to the Father, the, 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 the first century church continued to fast. They found this in, as, an, as a powerful way to enter into prayer. And notice that in this text that we read this morning, Jesus moves right to fasting after he wraps up his words on prayer. Verses 16 through 18. And when you fast. There's an assumption here that, that, that his people would be fasting. Matthew 4, a couple chapters earlier, Jesus is uh, in the wilderness and he makes that, this claim that man does not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the, from, from the Father, from the Word of God. And there's a, an invitation there as we think about fasting and the idea of often fasting is related with giving up food. And then Jesus, who'd been fasting for a long time in Matthew chapter 4, he says, man does not live by bread alone. There's this recognition that, that putting that away, of, of actually saying no to the food, putting, putting that aside, has some sort of a, a power, some sort of an ability for us to see what we need. And so Jesus concludes, man does not live by bread alone. We need, we need the word of God. We need God's involvement. We need the mouth of God. We need communion with God. You see, fasting is giving up. Fasting is giving up control. It's giving up instant gratification. Most common in fasting is, is fasting from food. But fasting from shopping or past, uh, fasting from media, th- those, are, those are really good options in our current cultural moment. Those are things that, that are, are at our fingertips. Has anybody set up Amazon one-click pay? Pretty easy to shop, right? Pretty easy to, to, to have, have that be something where it's like, maybe you're stressed out and you, you shop. You shop to deal with your stress. Maybe you binge on Netflix to deal with your stress. Maybe you eat to try to find comfort. Fasting is an invitation to give those things up the way we've talked about it in the past, fasting is putting one thing down to free our hands to pick up something better. And so for the course of 2,000 years, the, the Christians have practiced fasting, an intentional season of time where you put something down to free your hands to pick something, uh, uh, pick, pick something better up. And due to where we're at in the calendar, I want to take a couple minutes and, and connect these two ideas uh, this, the season of, of Lent. Lent is just a couple weeks away. It's the first Wednesday of March this year. And uh, so we're just, a, a couple, just over a couple weeks away uh, from its start. And one thing that we've realized uh, here is that over the years, as we've been getting more intentional about the church calendar, is that Lent can really sneak up on you. Uh, Lent can be something where it's like, uh, you know, uh, on Sunday we're like, hey, this Wednesday's Ash Wednesday. Uh, or we send out an email, hey, don't forget Ash Wednesday's tomorrow. And it's like, there, there was no time to think about it. There was no time to prepare. 
So I want to take a few minutes right now and talk about Lent um, and, and what it is and how prayer and fasting uh, uh, fit in. So Lent, it's a 40-day journey with Jesus to intentionally prepare ourselves for Easter. The word Lent comes from an old English word that means spring. And there's a sense in which it is both figurative and literal. Literally, over the course of the 40 days of Lent, in, in maybe not in northern Michigan, but in a lot of places, spring is actually happening. Stuff is melting. Flowers are starting to bud. Trees are starting to show that spring is here. And through the long, dark, cold winter, there's, there's these little glimpses of hope. There's these little rays of hope. Like spring is coming. And then there's the figurative sense in which spring has an appropriate meaning here. And that is the, the, the progressive light of the resurrection. The progressive light to Easter. This longing for this hope that is declared on Easter morning when it is, it is, it is declared, he is risen. And so it's a, a fitting word for this 40-day journey. And it does. It starts on Wednesday, Ash Wednesday. This year, it's the first Wednesday of March, March 2nd. And it starts with Ash Wednesday, and we'll gather here uh, on Ash Wednesday, and we'll have a, a service, a time where we actually own the reality of mortality. The fact that we are from Ash, and to Ash we will return. It's an incredibly sobering moment. But it's also energizing. You're starting this new journey. And if you've ever started any kind of a journey, you know how exciting the beginning is. The beginning's really, really great. So it starts off with Ash Wednesday. Everybody's got all their you know, energy. And then it gets really, really boring. It's, it's 40 days of these, these commitments that we'll talk about here in a second. But of these, these commitments. And, and, and the, the interesting thing is, as, as the boring weeks drag on, like, that's where the formation actually happens. Hanging in there. Communicating with God in these intentional ways, in these intentional rhythms, over the course of almost basically seven weeks. Then you hit Holy Week. Lent comes to a close, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and then Easter. And then in the church calendar, do you know what happens after Easter? 50 days of Eastertide. And so as we walk through the 40 days of Lent, and we'll talk about the, the nature of those 40 days, but, but they're heavy. Then we move into 50 days of Eastertide, of celebration, of feasting of recognizing this good news of a resurrected Christ. So what specifically is Lent? Well, Lent is a time of transformation through prayer. Uh, Aaron Damiani, uh, Lou and Patty's son, wrote a book called The Good of Giving Up. And uh, it's all about Lent. He actually said it could be titled Lent for Dummies. Uh, and it is on our book wall out there if you'd like to, to grab a copy. But he says the first suggestion that you might want to start with is how do I want to become more like Jesus? So as you think about Lent, got a couple weeks to prepare yourself. How do I want to become more like Jesus? What, what about me needs to change? If you're like me, there are parts of you that want to be like Jesus. And then there are parts of you that don't want to be like Jesus. What would it be like to give yourself over 40 days to one of those areas? This is one of the reasons why repentance is a component to Lent, historically speaking. Advent is waiting. Lent is repenting, turning, changing. 
It's a recognition of what's going on inside of me. And, you know, we want transformation. I think probably everybody wants transformation. But transformation takes time. It takes intentionality and the power of Jesus through his spirit. And so Lent is an invitation, a 40-day invitation for you to, to identify some areas of your life that you want to be in communication with God about, that you want to be asking God to be at work in you regarding, that maybe by his grace, through your repentance, through your submission, through your giving up, that he might transform you. Lent is also a time to fast. Now, look, f- fasting um, is, is part of Lent, and you might think of it, uh, there's, you know, often people are giving up something for Lent, giving up chocolate or you know, whatever, uh, alcohol or, or, or meat or something. Um, and and that, you might refer to that as a partial fast. It's giving up something for those 40 days. Partial fast is something that you can choose to put down It could be a luxury, it could be a distraction, it could be a dependence, uh, in order to free your hands so you can pick up something better. And so common things would be to get off of social media, or to give up Netflix, or to not eat dessert, or to give up chocolate, or to give up alcohol. Now now what the partial fast isn't, it's not not repentance. So, So you don't, you don't, give up something for 40 days that you should give up for the rest of your life. It, it's, it's, it's something that you look at in your life, and it's a luxury, it's a distraction, it's a, dependent, a dependence, and you, you put it down for those 40 days in order to say, for this season of time, I want a greater sense of focus. Aaron Damiani offers these questions to consider what might be a good partial fast for you. What cravings have a hold on me? What would be truly liberating to leave behind? Short of an addiction, have I become dependent on a particular food, drink, substance, or activity? What would be truly challenging to give up for Lent? What is Jesus asking of me? So maybe write those questions down or take a picture of that screen or get a copy of of Aaron's book. And as you consider those questions over the next two weeks, it might help guide you into what, what is this partial fast? What is this thing that I can give up for the entire 40 days. Well, Lent also has a sense of a whole fast, and that is taking a rhythm to your week where you choose a meal or two or a whole day, and you fast from food each of those days for the seven weeks of Lent. Some of us have been fasting on first Wednesdays for the last couple years. Uh, maybe, Maybe that would work for you. Give up one meal on Wednesdays or give up two meals on Wednesdays. Or give up food for the whole day on Wednesday. So there's a partial fast, something that you say, I'm not going to do any of that over the course of Lent. And then there's a whole fast where you actually are are giving up, typically this would be a meal or food, and you would say, on these days, it's going to be even more intentional. Two quick pieces of advice. Find a friend or two who observe Lent with you. Tell them what your commitment is, and then encourage each other throughout the journey. And then secondly, you're going to like this. Sundays are considered mini-Easters. In a lot of traditions, what they suggest is this. On Sundays, whatever commitment you made to put down for those 40 days, you're not committing to that on Sundays. It's a mini-Easter. It's a little little break, a ray of light in the middle of the darkness. 
And there's a reason why the 40 days don't count Sundays. The 40 days of Lent, it starts on a Wednesday because Sundays don't count. It's an invitation to actually remember that as heavy as Lent is, Easter's coming. The, all these little mini Easter's throughout the season. So take advantage of it. Come and gather for worship. Gather for food. Enjoy the mini Easter's throughout the season. And then last, so Lent is a, a time of transformation through prayer. Lent is a time to fast. And then Lent is a time to give. So almsgiving would be a, a more traditional term. But it is where during the season of Lent, there's a more uh, intentional effort for the people of God to be generous towards those who are in need. And you can see how this, this dovetails nicely. As you are saying no to some of your personal desires, you also are reminded that you're not controlled by your money either. That it's this, this progressive movement towards the things that might own you uh, that you, you're, you're de demonstrating before God, like you can give those things away. You can actually loosen your hands. And one option for this, not the only option, but one option is that during Holy Week every year, we do a mercy offering. And it's an offering that sits in its own fund. It's dollars that we use to help people that are in financial need. And it's also money that we use to encourage other ministries that are doing really good work for those in need. So we've helped single mom New City Kids, uh, Young Life, Young Lives, uh, Christ Hope, Safe Harbor, Refugees. Uh, your generosity to this fund over the years is what has provided the dollars to be able to do those kinds of things. And we've loved seeing your generosity towards this offering grow year after year. And that doesn't just go into a general fund. Like that goes into the Mercy Fund. It is, it is dollars set aside specifically with the opportunity for us to bless uh, those who, who are in need. And you can think creatively about that. You can think generously about that. You could give a whole paycheck. Uh, you could give a dollar a day, 365 bucks. You could give a dollar a month, $12. But what, whatever looks like generosity for you at this moment in your life, it's a beautiful way to, to open your hands and to be part of meeting needs for people who are in need. Well, if you tie these three things together, prayer, fasting, and financial generosity, if you time together intentionally for 40 days, the, uh, the, the church, the people of God, historically have found that pairing to, to have a special way of shaping you. In a historic way, the people of God have been ready to feast and to celebrate on Easter Sunday because they went through the effort to prepare. So, so don't wait. Ash Wednesday is going to be here before you know it. Aaron Damiani's book is on the book wall. Um, maybe some of you use this, but our church provides a resource called the Daily Prayer Project. And this is a, 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 something that gives you daily readings, daily prayers uh, throughout the entire season of Lent. They're available at the welcome table. And if they're gone after today, we can get more uh, for next Sunday. But that is a, a resource that will guide you uh, throughout the season. So consider joining us for the journey. Let me close with this. Prayer is receiving. Prayer is receiving. So prayer is relational, prayer is giving up, and then prayer as receiving. What is your motivation for prayer, for fasting, for observing Lent? You know, Jesus has some concerns about that. He says, like I've, I, kind of like I've seen it all. And I've, I've, seen, I've seen how some people are coming to this, and it's not helpful. They're not doing what they think they're doing. They're not, they're not coming with the, the kind of heart, the kind of, the, the kind of attitude that, 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 uh, that I long for.
There's an author named Christopher Watkin, not Walken, Watkin. Um, and he, he says, he asked this question, are your prayers N-shaped or are they U-shaped? And if you look at these slides uh, be behind me here, he says, this is what a, an N-shaped prayer looks like. I make a sacrifice to the God, and then the God gives me what I want. And a lot of us uh, think that way. He says, this is what a U-shaped prayer looks like. God reaches down in unmerited grace. We respond in joyful and obedient thanks. When you consider those two options, as simple as those little graphics are, I find it helpful. I find it helpful for how quickly my heart can drift towards an N-shaped prayer. Thinking somehow, as Jesus mentions right here in Matthew chapter 6, this idea of actually saying something to where I think I can use all my words to manipulate God, to get God to do for me what I think I want him to do. The U-shaped prayer would be much more in line with what the Bible invites us into. That God was the initiator. That God went first. That God reached down in unmerited grace, unmerited favor, unmerited kindness. And when we see what he has done for us, then our response is this sense of, of thankfulness, of gratitude, of joy, in which we recognize that if God would do something like that, if God would send his own son to rescue the world, if God would get his own hands dirty to do that, then maybe he's the kind of person that I can trust with my life. If he really is a heavenly father who knows what I need better than I know what I need, then maybe I can, I can trust him. Maybe my response to him can be joyful, obedient thanks. Jesus says, watch, watch out that you don't slip into doing this as a show. It's a very easy thing to do. And this kind of points to one of the dangers, I think, with prayer. Um, there's, there's an author uh, who, who wrote The Praying Life. And he uses a little illustration. He says, if you think about a windshield, he said, how good of a driver would you be if you drove around staring at your windshield, if you stare at your windshield, you, you are going to wreck your car. He says that the windshield is meant to, be, to see through. It's something that you look, in a sense, you look through it. And the Bible's invitation for prayer is like that. Prayer isn't something that you sit there and make prayer all about prayer itself. Prayer is an invitation to communion with God. And if it's all you're doing is tracking how many minutes did I pray this week? Did I, did I check off my prayer time? If that's all that's going on for you, then it's like you're staring at the windshield. It would be like going on a date night with your spouse and just making sure that you get the reservations and that you, go, that you ordered food. And missing the fact that the whole point of date night was actual relational depth with your spouse. Prayer is like a windshield. It's, it's meant as a means. It's meant as something to, to commune with God. And, and this, is, this is what um, Richard, uh, Richard Lovelace says. The quote will be on the screen. He says, there's a danger in trying to commit to prayer. Uh, and, and this is what is a danger that prayer can become. And it's actually on display in the history of the church. That prayer becomes not an expression of faith in God's grace, but a monument erected to attract his attention. He says, historically, trust was not centered on the God who constantly oversees our paths and knows our needs, but on prayer itself, which must be used as a magical lever to pry answer, answers from an unwilling God. Since there is a great deal of defective Christianity in existence, it follows that there is plenty of this defective prayer. 
And one generation full of it can produce a succeeding generation which hardly prays at all. If one generation spends its time engaged in bad prayer, a generation of prayerless workers is sure to follow. Now, just in case you're older and you feel like you're getting shot at, Richard Lovelace wrote this in 1979. So he, when he talks about the defective Christianity that he's observing, he's talking about our grandparents' generation or our great-grandparents' generation. And he's not saying everyone. He's just saying that this has become this, this dominant uh, uh, dynamic in, 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 in Christianity, especially in the West. And it's become prayer for prayer's sake. It's become this magical lever to try to pry answers from an unwilling God. Have, have you felt that? I've felt that. I've felt the sense of like, I've prayed and prayed and God doesn't do anything. Well, that sure sounds like a one-way street. Now, there's plenty of times where the psalmist is expressing his concerns and his frustrations and his anger with the God of heaven. That's not wrong. But the, the psalmist consistently is willing to go to the house of the Lord or to, to remember the ways of the Lord, to allow his heart and his mind to be formed and shaped by who God is and what he's doing in the world. Richard Lovelace's quote is, is sobering, but it doesn't have to be that way. And we don't have to sit around and blame the last generation. I want us to just see what we're missing. And don't miss that at the end of verse 6, Jesus has the audacity to promise you a reward. He says, But when you pray, go into your room, shut your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And it's not the only time in the Bible that this kind of language is associated with prayer. God says prayer, it, it, it brings God's blessing upon you. And what is the reward? Well, sometimes it's the thing that we wanted. Sometimes it's the thing that we asked for. But if it's not, then guess what? It's something better. Because God gives you either what you asked for or what you would have asked for if you knew everything that he knew. And so as we come and we get the chance, the opportunity to talk with the God of heaven, our Father in heaven, we have this invitation to reorient our expectations and to actually say, we want your kingdom to come. We want your will to be done. I heard a picture, a word picture one time that says, it's like God has set a feast on his table. And he has said to us, just come sit down and talk. Come sit down and talk. Participate in the feast. Look, look, this is all, it's all right here. It's all for you. Let's, let's talk. And we're too busy to sit down. We're too distracted to sit down. Jesus says, if you'll do it, your father will reward you. There will be blessing. Maybe not what you wanted. Maybe not what you thought. But something even better. We have a father who knows what we need before we ask. You know, how is he our father? How is he our father? Well, the Bible's answer to that is through the adoption that comes through faith in Jesus. That our perfect older brother, Jesus, came to this earth and took on a human body and lived the life that we should have lived and then died the death that we deserved. 
And in doing that, he won for us adoption into the family of God. That by faith alone, we are actually treated as brothers and sisters of Jesus, as sons and daughters of God. Listen, if we believe that, we would pray more. If we believed that not only do we have a heavenly father who knows what we, have, what we need better than we do, but we also know that he's ready to reward us and to bless us for coming and sitting at the table, we would pray more. We're trying to grow in this area as a church. And the season of Lent offers a really good invitation to jump in. So in, the, in Sojourn Weekly this past week and in the weeks ahead, keep your eyes open. There, there are prayer opportunities. We have prayer Wednesday nights on the first Wednesdays of the month. There's prayer retreats that we've offered over the last uh, uh, year or so. Uh, every Sunday morning at 9 o'clock, we gather to pray. Keep, keep your eyes open for those opportunities and then invest yourself in Lent. See, see what God might want to do as you open your heart and let him reform it. Eugene Peterson said, Prayer, Prayers are tools not for doing or getting, but for being and becoming. What a gift that is. Well, we finish our services with communion every single week. And one of our desires uh, for making communion normal is that we, we, we have a rhythm to, to, our, to our worship. And as we sit and we consider this good word from God, as we sit and consider how it is that he has designed for us to live in the world, we end by coming to the table and reminding ourselves that if Jesus didn't do what he did, then all this is for nothing. All this is empty. So thank God that he did. And this bread represents his body. This cup represents his blood. And if you're a child of God, man, we invite you to come and partake. Uh, if our service would please come, let's pray. God, thank you for this time together. We thank you for uh, the invitation that you give us to come and talk, to come sit with you, to come be with you, to hear from you, and to talk to you, to have you reshape our souls, maybe even some parts of our life that we weren't ready for you to touch yet. Thank you that you love us better than we love ourselves. Thank you that you know us better than we know ourselves. Thank you that you are for our good all the time. God, I pray for us in this season ahead, in the Lenten season that is just around the corner. Uh, God, we, we, I think I speak for us. We, we want to be transformed more into the image of Jesus. Would you use the 40 days, the times of prayer and fasting, of generosity? God, would you use those things to, to, to free us from the things that might be holding us back, from the areas of our life that we haven't been ready to give you yet? God, we ask for you to do that work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.